0: Hello I'm Derek Walker, I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. Today we're going to discuss the issue, where was the temple located? The temple being a most holy place, a holy place is a place that God has set apart for himself and for the fulfillment of his purposes. It's a place where God has chosen to act in in history and to reveal himself and his glory. This doesn't just apply to the past. Also to the future, because the prophetic scriptures reveal God is not finished. He will intervene again and reveal his glory. And he will change things on earth in dramatic ways. Of all the lands on earth, the land of Israel is said to belong to God in a special way. So that God often calls it my land. Of all the places in Israel, Jerusalem is called the holy city, the city of God, and the city of the great king. And Jesus in the New Testament reaffirms that Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And then if we look at Jerusalem, we find the holiest place is the temple mount, where the holy temple stood, and it's called the holy mountain. Psalm 48 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Within the temple itself, was the holy place, and then the most holy place of all, the Holy of Holies, God's earthly throne, where his glory dwelt. Some say that now that Christ has come, places are no longer important. But they forget that God's purposes have not been finished yet. For example, the Bible predicts in Zechariah that Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives, a specific place, and he'll reign over the earth from Mount Zion from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem over the, and reigned from the throne of David for a thousand years. Before that, Revelation 11 tells us that the Jews will rebuild a third temple on the Temple Mount and God will use it to reach Israel and the nations through the, through the ministry of the two witnesses. And that's before Antichrist takes control of it and defiles it with the abomination of desolation, declaring himself to be God. Revelation 11, 1, God, John, is told to go and measure, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it's being given to the Gentiles. In the tribulation, the Antichrist will broker a covenant with Israel whereby the temple mount will be shared between the Jews and the Muslims and the Jews will be able to rebuild their temple. And it says, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's the second half of the tribulation. And I will give my power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth, calling Israel to repentance. And Their ministry is for the first half of the tribulation. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. The two witnesses announce the tribulation trumpet judgments in the first half of the tribulation. And that's why when they're killed, the whole earth rejoices and blames them for tormenting everyone on the earth. It says, when they finish their testimony, that's at mid-tribulation, the beast, the antichrist, that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. The great street actually means the plaza, the broad open place of the city. And that's a perfect description of the Temple Mount because their ministry will be on the Temple Mount. And then it says also where our Lord was crucified. So clearly it will be in Jerusalem. God will use these two witnesses to proclaim the gospel to Israel and through TV to the nations. They will operate from the Temple Mount. So God will use the third temple to remind the Jews that salvation is not through law-keeping but through the shedding of blood. As Israel comes to their temple, the two witnesses will preach Christ to them. As they offer up the animal sacrifices, they will preach that Christ, the Lamb of God, has been slain and rose again after three days, proving that he is the Messiah. As a final sign that validates their preaching, God will also resurrect these three, two witnesses after three days in the eyes of all the nations, because the TV cameras will be on them. That's what it says, verse 9. Those, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But God has the last word. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Having finally captured the temple mount, the Antichrist will take over the temple, dedicate it to himself, declare himself as God, Paul says of him in Thessalonians, he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he's God. Notice, Paul here calls the third temple a temple of God. So it's built in the right place. And the Jews have already decided that there is only one place where they can rebuild the temple, and that's where all the other temples were, and that is on Temple Mount. Daniel 9:27 describes what the Antichrist does next. It says he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven—that's for seven years—and in the middle of the seven years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering in the in the temple, and the Antichrist will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That's his destruction at the second coming of Christ. So. This says that halfway through the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist breaks the covenant, takes over the temple, stops the Jewish sacrifices, and sets up an abomination in the temple, and desecrates the temple that way. And an abomination is an idol to a false god, even to himself. Perhaps that's the image of the beast that Revelation 13 talks about. And this direct attack on God's temple causes God's desolating judgments to fall in the second half of the tribulation, which will be far worse than the ones in the first half. And that's why it's called the Great Tribulation. And that's why it's called the Abomination of Desolation. It brings desolation down. So God takes his temple seriously, and the desecration of his temple he takes very seriously indeed. In Je- and that's a future temple. In Jesus' prophecy of the end times, He confirmed Daniel's prophecy that the temple will be rebuilt and be the center of the spiritual conflict. And he refers to Daniel's prophecy and he points out that it yet has to be fulfilled. It's in Matthew 24. When therefore you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Notice he calls the temple the holy place. Let those in Judea flee to the mountains, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Notice he describes the future temple as the holy place. So the true location of the temple and its holiness is still important to God and to Satan. And this is the reason why it's the center of the action and the spiritual warfare in the tribulation. So the present spiritual battle over the control of the Temple Mount will come to a climax in the Tribulation with the warfare of God and his Christ against Satan and his Antichrist. It will end with the return of Christ to the Mount of Olives followed by his triumphant entry into the Temple just like he did in his first coming and then that's where he will establish his earthly throne for the thousand year millennium and then that will, his throne will be part of, the four, of a fourth temple that's described at the end of Ezekiel. And so we see that the temple was the center of action, spiritual action in the Old Testament. It was very much a center for the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. He called it my father's house. And it will be again the center of action in the tribulation and in the millennium. So God's temples are very important. And that's why this Temple Mount is the most contested piece of real estate in the world and the centre of a great spiritual warfare, so much so that many see it as a potential trigger for the next world war. It's still a holy place that God has set aside and apart for the fulfilment of his purposes and which Satan contests and desires to control instead of God. And so presently this is manifested by the competing claims and the struggle between Islam and Israel over its ownership and control. And it's a major reason why any peace deal seems impossible at the moment, because neither side would be willing to give up the Temple Mount. The Jews claim their historic ties to the land, going back to God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, uh, when God gave them the land, the whole land. Jerusalem was then captured by King David and made his capital, and Solomon then built his temple there. And all of this goes back long before the birth of Islam. Although in the past Islam didn't try and deny this Jewish history, recently their uh, teaching, their propaganda has changed and it tries to rewrite history and deny any Jewish connection with the Temple Mount. All this is motivated by the d- d- desire to claim control over this holy place. For Bible believers, the rebirth of Israel in 1948 and the recapture of Jerusalem in 1967 were acts of God, clear fulfillments of Bible prophecy for the end times, setting the stage, as it were, for the final countdown, the final showdown. So Israel was born into a spiritual warfare over her right to exist and possess her land, and especially Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount is at the center of this warfare. Into this spiritual warfare have stepped some well-meaning but misguided Christians with a novel theory originated by Dr. Ernest Martin that the Temple was never on the Temple Mount at all, but in the city of David, whilst the Temple Mount was actually where the Roman Antonia Fortress stood. My intention is to prove to you that this theory isn't just false but dangerous because it's being used and gives encouragement to the enemies of Israel. Uh, It supports the modern radical Muslim narrative that Israel and and the Jews have no right to the Temple Mount. It's given heart as I say to the radical Muslims that even Christians, many Christians are on their side and against the Jews on this key issue. If we go to the Temple Mount today, it's basically a large platform with some Islamic structures on it. The Temple of Jesus' time was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70 so that nothing is left of it. And this was part of the judgment on Israel for their national rejection of the Messiah. As a result, it's just a platform. During the Christian Byzantine Empire of the 4th to 7th centuries, the Temple Mount was abandoned and used as a rubbish tip. And the center of holiness for the Christians became the the great Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which they thought was the location of Christ's death and resurrection. It suited their cause to be able to point to the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, that all the temple buildings would be cast down. And the contrast of the magnificent Holy Sepulchre with the abandoned Temple Mount, a short distance to its east, was a visual aid showing the supremacy of Christianity over Judaism. When the Muslim armies conquered Jerusalem in the 7th century, they knew it was the most holy place for Jews and Christians. And so they wanted to demonstrate the ascendancy of Islam and the fact that it was now superseding and replacing these former religions. And so it did this by first building a shrine and then a mosque on what was known now as the holiest site for all the Jews, the Temple Mount confirming that the people of that time knew that this was where the temple stood. At the south end of this platform is the Alaska Mosque, which means the furthest mosque. This name refers to a chapter of the Quran called the Night Journey, in which it said that Muhammad travelled from Mecca to the farthest mosque and then up to heaven. Although Jerusalem is not mentioned by name in the Quran, a later Islamic tradition from the uh, 10th century, Assigned this event to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so, from the 10th century, the name Alaska was applied actually to the whole Temple Mount, making Jerusalem the third most holy place in Islam. And this is actually the basis of their claim to the Temple Mount. However, there was no mosque there during the time of Muhammad, and it certainly was not the furthest mosque from Mecca. In time, Alaska came to be applied to just applying just to the large mosque at the southern end of the Temple Mount. In the middle of the Temple Mount is the beautiful gold-covered Dome of the Rock, an Islamic shrine made in 691 AD, the first major sanctuary built by Islam. It was built to cover the only piece of exposed bedrock on the Temple Mount, the local peak of the mount. The Dome of the Rock is a shrine rather than a mosque and it's obviously designed to cover the special rock beneath and to assert an Islamic rulership over it because they believed in its holiness. But why would Islam consider this particular place to be so important? According to the current Muslim tradition, the dome was built to mark the place of Muhammad's ascension into heaven from this place. But if that were the case, there would be no need to erect the later dome of ascension nearby. Also, there's no evidence that the dome was built to mark the place of Muhammad's journey into heaven because none of the original inscriptions refer to that part of the Qur'an. Now, there are inscriptions you can see today on the outside of the dome that talk about Muhammad's journey to heaven, but they were added much later, well after the tradition of identifying Muhammad's journey with Jerusalem, before it took hold. If the holiness of this rock in their eyes was not due to Muhammad's midnight journey, it had to be because they knew it was the holiest place on earth for the Jews, who believed that it was the Holy of Holies of the temple. And from that fact, they deduced, that is the Jews deduced, that it was also the foundation stone of creation, and that it was where Abraham offered up Isaac but it's all based on them believing it was the Holy of Holies. And so, in line with Islam's assertion that it's the perfect fulfilment of all previous revelations, including to the Jews, it was imperative to appropriate the holiest site of the Jews for Islam. So this confirms that it was common knowledge in the 7th century that the Temple was built on the Temple Mount, and the Holy of Holies was the rock, that is, now covered by the Dome of the Rock. So that's why they built the Dome of the Rock on that place. It was built deliberately over the Holy of Holies. Islam's way of demonstrating its supremacy over Judaism and Christianity is by building mosques over their holy places. So, in order to assert dominion over Judaism, what better place to build a shrine than over their Holy of Holies? Moreover, it served the Dome of the Rock served as a statement of superiority over Christianity, which, because the Dome of the Rock is on higher ground than the Holy Sepulchre, with a dome, actually, of identical dimensions to the Holy Sepulchre. So it obviously was built as a comparison, in competition, you might say. And it was built in the Byzantine octagonal style, with the mosaic decorations uh, that are somewhat reminiscent of certain Byzantine features. And they, all of this, you see, is declaring the Islamic appropriation and ascendancy, ascendancy of what came before. This was reinforced by the many Quranic qu- quotes in Arabic along the inside walls of the Dome of the Rock, which were verses largely chosen from the Quran to call Christians to deny the Sonship of Christ, the Deity of Christ and the Trinity. Later the Crusades, Crusaders came along and they messed up the rock, underneath the Dome of the Rock, in when they tried to convert it into a church. And although they did mess it up a lot, um, when they were building what they called the Temple of the Lord, you can still see even today and deduce where the original Holy of Holies was because of the markings on this rock. And the original Holy of Holies, you can actually reconstruct it and it fits the biblical dimensions perfectly. And especially impressive is that right in the, temp- in the center of the Holy of Holies is a rectangular indentation in the rock in which, of the, the, in which the Ark of the Covenant would have fitted perfectly. And this helped keep it stable in the earthquake. So we have tremendous evidence actually that the Ark of the Covenant really was there uh, where the Dome of the Rock is. That, that is the Holy of Holies. So all the evidence is, is definitely pointing towards the traditional view of where the Temple Mount is, and we're gonna look at this in great detail over the next um, couple of programs. So the general belief, whether Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, has always been that the dome stands above where the original Holy of Holies was. This is the position of the Jewish establishment based on research from their sources, and they, they have no doubt that this is actually where the Temple was. And they know that when the temple is rebuilt, that's where it must be rebuilt. And every archaeologist also holds that this standard view is correct, based on the evidence. However, in recent times, to strengthen their claim to the Temple Mount, the radical Muslim position has changed from what they held before. And they now deny there is any Jewish history or connection to the Temple Mount. And sadly, they've found encouragement in this belief from some Christians who are now promoting a theory, first proposed actually in 1999 by Dr. Ernest Martin, who had been a minister in the Worldwide Church of God founded by Herbert Armstrong. This new theory says that the temple was not on what is known today as the Temple Mount, but rather south of that in the City of David. More recently, this theory has been popularized in a more journalistic style by Robert Cornuki. And as well as undermining Christian support for Israel and the t- their right to the Temple Mount, the danger of this theory is also it results in Christians and Christianity being discredited in the eyes of the Jews. Uh, we, we should really be a witness to them. And so when we're so easily duped into following half-baked maverick theories, um, it can only result that they will not take us so seriously when we witness to them. Ernest Martin has now died, but Robert Cornuki has brought this theory into evangelical circles. He and others who are promoting it are generally evangelical. They believe in God's purposes for Israel, and they're well-intentioned. They believe in Bible prophecy that the third temple must be rebuilt in the end times. But this seems to be an impossibility as far as the temple mount is concerned because of Islam, because of the hostility of Islam to this. For if Israel started to build a temple today, it would start a world war. So, in their honest desire to see Bible prophecy fulfilled, they are drawn to this theory that seems... uh, to make it easier to rebuild the temple, you know, by saying that the temple never was on the Temple Mount, then somewhere else, then it will just be easier to rebuild the temple. Um, assuming, of course, we can convince the Jews to accept the theory, which would take an even bigger miracle. So they are actually trying to help God solve the problem by relocating the temple to another place where the Jews could build it without. Islamic opposition. That's the kind of the emotional motivation behind this theory. The problems with this whole line of thinking is first of all it's based on unbelief. It's based on the idea it's too hard for God to change things to prepare the way for the Third Temple to be built on the Temple Mount. My own belief is that what might happen soon is that a coalition of Russia and many Islamic nations will invade the mountains of Israel. That is, the West Bank, the Occupied Territories. judea samaria is the biblical term for it. And they'll do this to establish a Palestinian state and to lay the foundation then for the destruction of the whole of Israel. Ezekiel 38 prophesies this in great detail will happen in the end times. And it also prophesies that God's going to intervene in judgment against these invading armies and he will demonstrate that there is, the God of Israel is still alive and he is the God in Israel and he'll unleash the forces of nature against them including a massive earthquake and that will in, destroy the invading armies and I think it will also destroy the Dome of the Rock and it will radically change the balance of power in the Middle East and it will create a window of opportunity for Israel to actually start to rebuild her temple That's one way it could work. Secondly, again this whole line of thinking about why we need to move the temple to another place to make it easier for God to fulfill his prophecies. Well, it's not going to work because the Jews know and they've always known that the temple is on the Temple Mount and they won't be persuaded otherwise. It's unthinkable considering the holiness and the importance of the temple to the Jews and its sheer size that somehow the Jews could have forgotten where their temple was, especially as they don't just think of it as something belonging to their past, but something that is essential to their future. And they believe that their temple will be rebuilt because the prophets say so. And so the temple is not some historical curiosity for them, but it's a very at the heart of their DNA. And so throughout the the last 2000 years they've always kept the temple in their memory and they've always wanted to visit the temple and and pray at the Wailing Wall so it's not something that they're just gonna forget where the temple was and totally change the location Um, above all races really the Jews have been diligent to pass down their identity and their traditions from generation to generation even when they've been scattered to the four corners of the earth and the importance of Jerusalem and the temple were at the top of the list. Always they would pray every year. Next year in Jerusalem. And also the Jews have had maintained a continuous presence in the land. Even if they weren't in Jerusalem they would surely be, uh, would, would visit Jerusalem and so on. So they've al- there's always been some Jews in the land. So it's inconceivable that they forget where the temple was. And that's evidenced by their ongoing continual desire to go up to Jerusalem, pray at the Wailing Wall over the last 2,000 years. And also, because they knew any future temple had to be built on the holy place that God had previously ordained for the previous temples, because otherwise it wouldn't be a true temple if it's in the wrong place, it surely would have been a top priority for the Jews and especially their leaders to guard the knowledge where the previous temples were. And they have done that. And so, That's why they are sure, they know where it is. And it's on the Temple Mount, and it's the Holy of Holies is where the Dome of the Rock is. And so there's no way the Jews are going to accept some other place that some Christians have conjured up in a modern theory. There's no way they're going to accept that. And so this new theory is also futile from that point of view as well. And, And thirdly, it's futile because Islam doesn't just oppose the Jewish control of the Temple Mount, but it, it disputes Israel control of all of East Jerusalem, including the Old City and the City of David. And so they would strongly contest a Jewish temple in that location as well. Now, next time we're going to continue this study and we're going to investigate the true location of the temple by describing the two competing locations, the standard view and Martin and Cornuke's view. And One says it's on the Temple Mount. The other says it's in the city of David. We're going to describe those two possible locations and we're going to look at the evidence for each one of them. And we're going to follow the biblical history of of the temple and we're going to describe the origins of the temple and we'll see which theory fits the facts better but also we're just going to learn a lot about the temple because it's right at the heart of the revelation of the Bible and how important it is and remember you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and so you are very important to God His presence flows through you. You are the temple of God now in the earth. We're asking that question where was the temple? For some this might seem a strange question, because surely we know it was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But this has been recently thrown into question by Ernest Martin and Robert Cornuki, who have proposed it wasn't on the Temple Mount at all, but in the City of David, and it was actually the Roman Antonia Fortress that occupied the Temple Mount. And Previously I explained that this isn't just an academic question, but it has a vital spiritual importance. This is because the control of the Temple Mount is at the heart of the present spiritual warfare. And that's why it's the most fiercely contested piece of land on the earth. The Temple Mount is still holy ground and it will play a vital role in the fulfillment of God's purposes through the rebuilding of a Jewish temple there. But Satan is opposing God's purposes and wants to control the Temple Mount. So there's a battle between Israel and radical Islam over the control of the Temple Mount and Jerusalem, which is actually at the heart of the bigger issue of Israel's very existence in the land. Because the Temple in Jerusalem is the key spot which God has ordained to be the control center of the earth, the place from which the great king will rule the earth. My contention and my objection to the Martin Cornuke theory is not just that it's false but it plays into the hands of the powers of darkness causing well-meaning Christians to support the narrative of Israel's enemies. That she has no historic connection to the Temple Mount and therefore no right to control it. If it's just the Roman Antonia fortress then of course the Jews don't have anything to do with the Temple Mount and I believe that's not just wrong it's it's dangerous. And that's why I want to cover this theory in detail and show why it can't be true. We can understand the two opposing viewpoints from this picture. The bottom half is the original Jerusalem that David captured, called the City of David, with the Pool of Siloam in the far south. The standard view says that Solomon's temple was built on the plateau on the hill above the City of David, where the Golden Dome of the Rock now stands on a large platform. All other temples had to be built there also because that is the holy place that God originally ordained. Between the Temple Mount and the city of David is the offal. Martin's theory says that the temple was not on what we call the Temple Mount, but in the city of David. Here is another view of the city of David as it would have appeared in the time of David before the temple was built. The reason the original Jerusalem was built on a narrow ridge rather than higher up on the mount to the west or the mount to the north, and it's the mount to the north that can be seen in the picture, Uh, the reason, as I say, that Jerusalem was uh, built on this narrow ridge in the south is the Gihon Spring. And that's the only fresh water source in the area. Water was essential for any city. And the Jebusites had built a fortress around the spring, which you can see near the bottom of the slope as it leads down to the Kidron Valley. And this Jebusite fortress was recently discovered and is now called the Spring Tower. And next to it was the Rock Cut Pool, which was a reservoir of water for the people of Jerusalem. Above it, on top of the ridge, was David's Palace, which was also discovered recently and is now called the Large Stone Structure. Also, you can see today in Area G, The millow, which was necessary as a foundational support for David's large palace. And that's the the stony um, sloped, uh, as it were, foundation for the palace at the top. Houses and storerooms also from the second temple period were found at the base of the millow and can be seen today. In Martin's theory, the temple covered the whole area of David's palace, the millow and the spring fortifications in the city of David. But the standard view, in the standard view, the temple was built on the higher ground above and to the north of the city of David, uh, at the top right of the picture. Well, you should already see some fatal flaws with Martin's theory. The temple mount which is called Mount Zion in the Bible, should be on a mount. But the city of David can hardly be described as being on a mount. It's on relatively low ground compared to its surroundings. And secondly, the narrow ridge of the city of David just doesn't give enough room for the dimensions of the temple mount given in the Bible in the Jewish records. Thirdly, the recent archaeological discoveries of the buildings around the spring and higher up on the hill show that they were actually in continue to be in use throughout the time of the, of the first temple but that would be impossible on martin's theory because they would be underneath this temple mount of his now what we're going to do now is follow the history of the temple and see how the generally accepted view fits the, the uh, fits perfectly all the scriptural clues whereas martin's theory Fails consistently. The first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible is in the time of Abraham when he was met by Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem, in about 2000 BC. This picture shows that it was built on low ground compared to all the surrounding hills. The hill to the north um, is Mount Moriah and the hill to the east, which is the north being kind of the top right, of the picture, that's Mount Moriah. And the hill to the east is the Mount of Olives. And the valley between the city and the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley. This is where Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek after defeating the five kings and rescuing Lot. We read that in Genesis 14. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Remember that. After his return from the defeat of Shedolamah, and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He came out of the city into the valley, into the king's valley. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, blessed Abraham. We know that this valley of the kings was the Kidron Valley by comparing it with 2 Samuel 18, which says, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it's called Absalom's Monument. And there's another Absalom's Monument there in the Kidron Valley even today. In the slope leading down to the valley is the Gihon Spring. And that's the main reason why the city was built there on low ground rather than on one of the surrounding mountains. The vital importance of the spring meant that it was well fortified. It had to be well fortified. The surroundings of Jerusalem are also the setting for Abraham offering up Isaac, which is crucial for locating the temple, for this is the foundational event when God first set apart and ordained a definite place for sacrifices called Mount Moriah and made it holy. Genesis twenty-two: two Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. God showed him one of the mountains of Moriah on which to offer up Isaac. And from that point, it was known as Mount Moriah. And, as we'll see, Solomon later built the temple on Mount Moriah. Now, it should be obvious that Abraham would not have offered up Isaac within the city of Jerusalem itself. In any case... Verse 2 says it had to be on high ground on top of one of the mountains, which again disqualifies the city. The fact that it was on high ground rather than the low ridge on which the city was built is confirmed by the story as we read it in the next verses. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and he rose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. So this place must have been on high ground where God was telling him to offer up Isaac. So Mount Moriah, the ordained place of sacrifice, was not in the city but on one of the mountains surrounding it. Therefore the temple, which was also built on Mount Moriah, could not possibly be in the city of David, which is where the original city of Jerusalem was located, but rather on one of the mountains above it. When God saw that Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac, he stopped him. And he provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac, which Abraham offered up instead of Isaac. And this ram was the forerunner of many animal sacrifices that would be offered up on that same Mount Moriah, because of the temple. Each of these animal sacrifices were substitutes, dying in the place of man, and all of these were pictures of the ultimate sacrifices—that the ultimate sacrifice that God would provide, as Abraham said. To, in verse eight, he said, "My son, God will provide Himself, the Lamb, for the burnt offering. Ultimately, God would provide the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ." God revealed to Abraham, therefore, that this place was the ordained mount for sacrifices. And therefore, it's the ordained mount for the temple, where one day, even on this very mount also, the Father God would provide and offer up his own son to die in our place. And that God says that, essentially. God reveals that in verse 14. Let's read that. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. That's Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That is the final sacrifice will be provided. Or it could be in this mount, the Lord will be provided. And so what he's saying is here, in the same mount where Abraham offered up Isaac, this is where God will provide sacrifice the sacrifice for the salvation of mankind. But before that, he'll provide all the sacrifices in the temple as as a picture of the final sacrifice. And God has set aside Mount Moriah for that very purpose. And so the temple must be on this Mount Moriah where Abraham offered up Isaac. So by naming the mount, the place of God's provision, Jehovah Jireh, Abraham was not just looking back at how God did provide this ram as a sacrifice in the place of Isaac, but also Abraham was looking into the future, because his explanation there is, in the mount of the Lord it it shall be provided. And so this speaks of God's future provision of sacrifices in this ordained holy mount, for sacrifices to die in the place of men. And this initially was fulfilled by all the sacrifices offered up in the temple on Mount Moriah and then ultimately by the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, on Mount Moriah. You can see on this contour map that Mount Moriah does not actually peak at the Temple Mount, but it rises up higher to the north. The peak of Mount Moriah is the place known as Golgotha, where Christ was provided as the final sacrifice in fulfillment of Genesis 22.14. So we've seen that God has already set apart the ordained holy place for sacrifices in Genesis 22 by guiding Abraham to offer up Isaac there. This place was on a mountain called Moriah near Jerusalem, but it was not within the original city of Jerusalem, which is on low ground. Since Abraham offered up Isaac on Mount Moriah and prophesied that this was the place of God's provision of future sacrifices, it was imperative that the temple was built on the same holy Mount Moriah. And that's exactly what we read in 2 Chronicles 3 1, which says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So the temple was built on a mount. It's a simple idea. On a mount, but the city of david isn 't a mount. The temple was built on a mount, the very same Mount Moriah where Abraham offered up Isaac. Now this would make no sense if the temple was built within the city because the city is not a mount, and Abraham did not offer up, offer up Isaac in the city, but on a mount near it. But it does make perfect sense if Mount Moriah is the mount to the north overlooking the city above and it fits the normal pattern of temples being built on higher ground outside the city where people live. You see its greater elevation represents its greater holiness. This is a picture of the Jebusite city of Jerusalem from 1800 BC to 1000 BC when it was captured by David. Notice the Jebusite fortress around the Gihon spring on the lower slopes and David's palace on top of the Milo. These massive Jebusite fortifications around the spring have recently been discovered, and they must be what the Bible calls the stronghold of Zion. And that's mentioned in the Bible as the fortress that David had to capture to take the city. No other comparable fortifications have been found. 2 Samuel says that David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Jerusalem then became known as the city of David. The defenders, the Jebusite defenders, thought they were safe, you see, within such strong fortifications. But David knew how to penetrate them because he grew up in Bethlehem, just five miles away. And he was an adventurous shepherd boy, taking his sheep around. And he would certainly have explored the tunnels, taking water from the Gihon spring to irrigate the valley. And therefore, he would have known the water system And he would have known that was the way into the fortress. And that's why it says in Samuel, David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the watershaft, watershaft, and defeats the Jebusites, he will be chief and captain. So he told them how to do it. And uh, David initially, once Jerusalem was captured, he initially lived in the Jebusite stronghold near the the spring while he was building a palace for himself. Then he built that Milo, in order to build his palace at the top, then Samuel 5 says, "Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built all around from the millow and inwards. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David now builds his palace at the top of that hill, and that's been discovered. The foundations have been discovered. A few verses on, in verse 17, we read, When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went down, went to search for David. And David heard of it and went down. Notice, he went down to the stronghold. So David is now dwelling in his palace at the top of the hill there. But because of the Philistine threat, He went down to the greater security of the original Jebusite stronghold around the spring. So this just confirms that David's palace was built at the top of the mellow, just where they have discovered the foundations of the large stone structure. Now if Martin's theory, as we've got pictured here, is correct, the temple was built above David's palace. So we have to believe that Solomon knocked down David's palace in order to build the temple. But as we continue the history, we will see that this is impossible. David gives us the next key also about the true location of the temple. Because God supernaturally led David to the exact spot where he wanted the altar of the temple to be. And he caused David to build the altar of the Lord there in a specific place. The altar, actually, as the place of sacrifice, is essential to any temple and it must be the first part of a temple to be established in order to consecrate the whole area for holy use. And So fixing the altar was the first stage of fixing the place of the temple. And we're told that the altar was built on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and it fixed the exact location of the temple according to 2 Chronicles, it says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place at the altar that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Let's look at this story. It's an amazing story. In Chronicles 21, it says, God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. As he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It's enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now this was the moment when the judgment was stopped. And the next verses explain why it was stopped and how this event determined the location of the future temple. It says, Then David lifted up his eyes, and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched over Jerusalem. David, who was in the city, looked up, and he saw this massive angel standing on higher ground above the city, pointing his sword toward the city as if about to destroy it. And verse fifteen actually tell, tells us exactly where the angel was standing. It, well, he wasn't in midair but rather it says the angel of the Lord stood by next to the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So the angel was standing at the top of the mount between earth and heaven adjacent to a threshing floor. And that's a vital clue as to where the temple was built. As in all of the appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, this angel was actually the Lord himself, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus this is confirmed in 2 Chronicles 3 1 Solomon it says began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place where David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. so here the angel of the Lord is called the Lord himself the sight of this mighty angel with sword drawn caused David to cry out to God we read David and the elders As a result, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces, and David said to God, Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad, the prophet Gad, to say to David, that David should go up, notice, go up, and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, Which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. David was told to go up from the city to the higher ground above it, to the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, and build an altar there on his threshing floor, right next to where the angel was standing, so that he could offer an atoning sacrifice there in the immediate presence of the angel, which would then stay the hand of judgment on Jerusalem. We read, Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. This Ornan was obviously made of strong stuff. He just carried on working even in the presence of this mighty angel. Ornan was on the threshing floor, threshing wheat there, and he too saw the angel standing next to the threshing floor. We read, So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked up and saw David. And he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price for I will not take what is yours for the Lord nor offer burnt offerings with that which cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. And David built there, that's on the threshing floor, an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And God answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to his sheath. Amazing story. You see, by sending fire on the altar, by stopping the judgment of the angel, God confirmed that he had accepted David's sacrifice. And that also meant that the altar that David built was in exactly the right place, on the threshing floor. So from that time, David started sacrificing at this God-ordained altar, which then became the location for the altar of the temple. Chronicles says, at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. So, number one, the location of the temple altar was now fixed as being on the threshing floor. Also, secondly, the place where the angel of the Lord stood, he had stood on higher ground, that must be the top of the hill, above the threshing floor, that then fixed the place of the Holy of Holies which would be the starting point for the building of the temple structure itself. They would have started building from the temple of Holy of Holies and worked from there. And that's exactly what 2 Chronicles says, 3.1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, firstly, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. So this says that the Holy of Holies was where the angel appeared to David. That's at the top of the hill. And secondly, it says they built the um, at the secondly at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite so this confirms that the altar of the temple was where David prepared an altar on the threshing floor the two key points of the temple the holy of holies and the altar position was now fixed by this experience this is confirmed in 1 chronicles 22 David said this pointing to a certain location, this, and that's actually where the angel stood at the top of the hill, this is the location of the house of the Lord God. And secondly, this, pointing in a different direction, this, that's the threshing floor, is the location of the altar of the burnt offering for Israel, those two key locations. And so we see that Solomon followed David's instruction for for the locations of the two key points of the temple that determined its exact location, the Holy of Holies and the altar. And it was revealed to David through his divine encounter where his sacrifice at that place saved Israel from judgment. So David then knew exactly where the temple should be built. God's temple had to be in a specific place of his choosing, so he left nothing to chance, but supernaturally revealed its location today. Now this scenario makes perfect sense if it took place on the mount above the city to the north, where the temple mount is today. At that time, it would have been a farming area for growing wheat, and a place near the top of the hill, but on its eastern slope. That would have been perfect a perfect place for a threshing floor where the wheat was threshed and then thrown into the air for the wind to carry away the chaff. A threshing floor should be in a high place, in an open space where it can catch the wind, but not at the very top of a hill, otherwise the westerly wind could be too strong and blow the wheat away as well. So placing it just under the peak on the eastern slope was perfect. Thus the Holy of Holies was where the angel stood at the peak, where the Dome of the Rock is now and the altar was placed to the east to its east where there was a threshing floor exactly where we would expect a threshing floor to be on the other hand martin's theory for the location of the temple makes no sense in the light of this account of David. It requires the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite to be inside the city near David's palace. For obvious reasons, threshing floors were never within cities, always in open fields outside the city, because that's where the wheat is. Be foolish to carry the wheat into the city to thresh and then cover the city in chaff. For example, Naomi told Ruth to go out to the threshing floor where Boaz was sleeping, waiting for a night breeze. And after she asked Boaz to marry her, it says, then, that's in the morning, she went into the city. So the threshing floor was outside the city. Moreover, Ornan's threshing floor couldn't be in the city of David because David conquered all the city from the Jebusite. So he wouldn't have to buy land inside the city from a Jebusite. But it does make sense if David graciously allowed Ornan which actually is the same name as the Jebusite king he conquered, and so it might be the king even, he allowed Ornan to continue to make a living by farming his lands north of the city, and that's why it makes perfect sense that David would feel the need to buy that farming land from Ornan. And that farming land is the location of the temple, not in the city of David itself. And so the story, this story of the temple's origin, when David was, it was revealed to David where the altar and the Holy of Holies should be, this absolutely proves that it, the temple could not have been in the city of David. It had to be in the hill above the city of David. Well, in the continuation of this study, we'll continue to follow the history of the temple and we'll assess the main arguments that are made for the, this new Martin Cornuke theory and we'll see how strong they actually are the temples of God you see can't just be anywhere they have to be in a place ordained by God there's been a general consensus among the experts that the temple was on what is known today as the Temple Mount and the standard view and the official Jewish belief is that the Holy of Holies was built on the exposed bedrock at the natural peak of the hill on which the temple platform was built this bedrock, called the foundation stone, is now covered by that beautiful golden dome of the rock. However, a modern theory of Ernest Martin and popularized by Robert Cornucci has thrown this all into question. They propose that the temples were not on the Temple Mount, but down in the city of David, and it was the Roman Antonia Fortress that occupied what we know today as the Temple Mount we've seen that God fixed the location of the temple to Mount Moriah by guiding Abraham to offer up Isaac there. Already this disqualifies Martin's theory because it requires Abraham to offer up Isaac within the original city of Jerusalem, which does not fit the description of a mount. Then we saw that God revealed to David that the altar of the temple was to be on a threshing floor and that the Holy of Holies on the nearby hilltop. This again disqualifies Martin's theory because threshing floors are always in the agricultural areas outside a city on high ground where they can catch the wind. So the temple couldn't be in the original Jerusalem, now called the City of David. All of this supports the standard view that Mount Moriah, on which the temple was built, is the hill to the north of the City of David. As we continue the history of the temple, we come to Solomon who was tasked with building it, according to the previous revelations given to Abraham, that it must be on Mount Moriah, and to David, that the Holy of Holies must be on the hilltop, where the angel of the Lord appeared to David, and that the altar must be on Ornan's threshing floor. That's exactly what Chronicles tells us. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, one, on Mount Moriah, two, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, that's the, the peak, And three, at the place where David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So the altar was on the threshing floor, which was near the summit, but on the eastern slope, thus protecting it from the strong gusts of wind coming from the west from the Mediterranean Sea. And so God set up the original event with David and the angel of the Lord in their exact positions as a template for all future sacrifices in the temple. David stood on the threshing floor and offered sacrifices on the altar before the Lord, who was standing on the hilltop. David stood exactly where the priests would later stand, offering up sacrifices in the, at the altar before the Lord, who was in the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, of course, that's exactly where the angel of the Lord stood before David. What a beautiful picture. In this picture, we see Solomon's temple on Mount Moriah, above and to the north of the city of David, with David's palace in the city of David, above the Milo. And the Gihon Spring fortifications, they are lower down on its eastern slope. In between the temple and the city of David David was the Offal area, which might well have included Solomon's palace, houses for the well-connected and administrative buildings. Surrounding all of this were the new city walls built by Solomon and so the building of the temple caused a major expansion of Jerusalem and Jerusalem is also called Zion. Jerusalem expanded to the north in Solomon's time and the center of holiness now was now of course the temple on the northern hill. Psalm 48 describes this new reality. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, that means height, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So this psalm describes the location of the temple as being in his holy mountain, also now called Mount Zion which is on the sides of the north, that is, on the north side of the original city, and beautiful in elevation, that is, on the higher ground above the original city. Needless to say, this description perfectly fits the classic view that the temple was built on the mountain to the north of the original Zion. As a city grows, the new part of a city takes on the same name as the old city, So now the whole area that included the city of David and Solomon's expansion to the north is named Zion. So when Jerusalem or Zion expanded to the north, this whole area was now called Zion. And the Temple Mount in the northern part was now called Mount Zion because it was the mount. So from this time, Mount Moriah was named Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord which is why the name Mount Moriah is not seen after this in the Bible. Whereas Zion described the whole new expanded city, that was composed of two parts. The first part is Zion, the city of David. That refers specifically to the original Zion of David's time. And the second part is the Solomonic expansion to the north, which is especially the Temple Mount, which is called Mount Zion. Thus the name Mount Zion exclusively refers to the mountain or the high point of Zion. So whereas Psalm 48 celebrates God's presence in Zion, the city of God, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, he's especially present in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north because that's where his throne is in the Holy of Holies at the highest point of the city of the great king. And so Zion expands, the whole thing is Zion, but the temple mount is now called Mount Zion because it's on the mount above the original Zion. More proof that Solomon's temple was not in the city of David is seen from the movements of the Ark of the Covenant and Pharaoh's daughter. One Chronicle says, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the Ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And that David brought up the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jirim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. So, when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Jerusalem, it was kept in a tent in the city of David. When David died, Solomon became king. One Kings tells us Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord. And the wall all around Jerusalem when Solomon had finished these projects we read Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her for he said my wife shall not dwell in the house of David king of Israel because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy so she lived in David's palace while the temple was being built which proves that the temple was not built where David's palace was in the city of David, for that would have required its destruction. This also tells us that the ark was kept in the grounds of David's palace, the same location as Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon realized this created a problem because the ark made the palace holy, holy ground, and she was an idolater. This was the major reason why she had to be moved as soon as possible. Notice that she was brought up from the city of David to higher ground outside the city of David to her palace, which was part of Solomon's palace complex, probably on the offal between the city of David and the Temple Mount. Kings confirms this Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, her palace, which Solomon had built for her. So Solomon's palace complex must have been built outside and above the city of David and the temple had to be on higher ground above that. These verses disprove Martin's theory, which requires the temple to be built in the city of David over the top of David's palace. But his Egyptian wife, Solomon's Egyptian wife, was still living in David's palace during and after the temple was built. So this is impossible. Also, these verses remind us that any theory must also explain the location of Solomon's palace complex. Now, just to fit his temple into the city of David, Cornuki, has to use a much smaller temple mount than what is prescribed in the Jewish records. He doesn't even have enough room for all its buildings. So there is certainly no room for Solomon's palace complex. In addition, realizing that Cornuki's temple mount within the city of David is impossible because it contradicts the scriptures we're looking at. Some have come up with an alternative theory, which has the temple just north of the city of David on the offal. Apart from the fact that, with this view, Cornuki's main arguments in favour of his site no longer apply to this new site, this theory also leaves no room for Solomon's palace complex, which had to be lower than the temple, that is, between the city of David and the temple. A final nail in the coffin of Cornuki's theory is the final journey of the ark. When the temple was completed, there was a great procession of all the leaders and priests to bring the ark up from David's palace into its place in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Kings tells us that King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. This clearly tells us, in direct contradiction to Cornukis' theory, that the temple was not in the city of David because the ark was taken from the city of David, the original Zion, up to a location outside the city of David which was on higher ground. So it was taken from Zion, the city of David, up to Mount Zion. This procession is described in Kings All the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon, all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place. This procession makes perfect sense according to the classic theory, starting from David's palace on the high point of the city of David, it went up through the area where Solomon's Palace complex was still under construction and then ascended further to the hilltop, which, of course, is the appropriate place for a temple. However, by Cornukis' theory, where the temple is within the city of David, this procession makes no sense at all. There is no journey for the ark to make, for it starts in David's palace and ends in the temple, which had to be built on top of David's palace, according to the theory. Another confirmation of the temple being on the temple mount comes when the glory of God leaves the temple in 588 BC because of Israel's idolatry. Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple through its east gate and then go directly east to stand over the peak of the Mount of Olives. We read, The cherubim stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And then it says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. And so it has to be that the top of the Mount of Olives has to be directly east of the temple. And that is true. The peak of the Mount of Olives is directly east of the Temple Mount. But east of the City of David is just the edge of the Mount of Olives where it falls away. The Jewish records also in the Mishnah say that the original Temple Mount and hence the sacred enclosure, the real holy space, was six—sorry, 500 cubits square, cubits about 18 to 21 inches. There were later expansions of the Temple Mount, the platform, by the Hasmoneans and King Herod. And although I don't have time to demonstrate this now, these measurements agree perfectly with the classic Temple Mount platform as we have it today. And it's even possible to reconstruct the exact position of the original 500-cubit sacred square from the clues on the mount itself. However, if one tries to fit the Mishnah's 500-cubit temple platform in the narrow city of David so that it goes over the Gion Spring, it just doesn't fit. It would have to cross over the Kidron Valley and cover part of the hill on the other side. The green square shows the Mishnah's platform fitting into the classic Temple Mount and the red square shows it how it doesn't fit into the City of David. Kornuki uh, adapts Martin's theory but he has to have a tiny Temple Mount to make it fit into the City of David. Its size is shown in purple. Sadly, it's never been possible to do archaeology on the Temple Mount because of Islamic opposition to that no doubt from a fear that more proof of its Jewish connection might be discovered. However, there has been archaeological work around the western and southern retaining walls and this has provided further evidence that confirms that this indeed was the Temple Mount. Just as Jesus predicted in AD 70, the Romans destroyed the Temple buildings and all the stones from the buildings on the Temple Mount on the platform were thrown down to the streets below, cracking the first century pavement. And that's exactly what was discovered. We can actually still see some of them today at the southwest corner, and they were left in place. Some of them were left in place by the archaeologists. And one of these stones in particular is of special interest called the trumpeting stone, as it had an inscription in Hebrew that says, to the trumpeting place. It was a directional sign for priests who blew a trumpet announcing the beginning and end of the Sabbath and for other announcements. It was found exactly where we'd expect to find it if the standard view is correct because the perfect place for announcements to reach the main population of Jerusalem below was the southwest corner. This was actually the pinnacle of the temple where Satan took Jesus to declare himself uh, to as many people as possible by jumping down off it. A replica of the trumpeting stone is there in the, pl- in the very place where it was discovered, and the original is in the Israel Museum. Further confirmations that we have the correct temple mount are the two temple warning stones discovered near the temple mount to the north, but they were actually a long way away from the city of David. These stones mark the limit of the court of the Gentiles on the temple mount, be- beyond which the Gentiles were for- forbidden to go. It reads in Greek, no stranger is to enter in to, within the balustrade around the temple and enclosure. closure. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. It symbolized the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles that's spoken of in Ephesians 2.14 that is now removed in Christ. Finally, we need to consider the main arguments for the Martin Cornuki theory. Why do they feel the need to come up with this new theory? The first one concerns the name Zion. They appeal to the many biblical references of the temple being on Zion or Mount Zion. And since, they say, the original city of David was called Zion, they deduce from that that all references to Zion in the Bible can only apply to the original Jerusalem, the city of David. But that's not how language works with city expansions. For example, I live in Oxford. That's a historic city that used to have walls. Now that doesn't mean, if I say I live in Oxford, that I live in the origin, within the original walls, because, which the, actually just enclosed quite a small area in the center of Oxford. You see, as a city expands, the area of expansion takes on the same name. So when Zion expanded to the north, the name Zion now included the Temple Mount. So Zion consists of the original Zion, which is the city of David, and then also the Mount, the Temple Mount, which is called Mount Zion, or the mountain connected to Zion. And then again, actually, the city expanded further, in the time of Hezekiah, it expanded onto the western hill. And then that also was called Zion. So the Temple Mount became part of Zion when the city expanded over the Temple Mount. So there's no problem here. Their second argument is the appeal to Jesus' prophecy that all the stones of the temple must be cast down. They would be cast down. And they point out that many of the great stones of the retaining wall of the Temple Mount from Jesus' time are still there in place today. Therefore, this could not be the original Temple Mount let's actually look at Jesus prophecy there in Matthew 24 It says Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples went up to show him the buildings of the temple and Jesus said to them do you not see all these things assuredly I say to you not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down now it's vital to read verses in context Jesus was clearly talking about the buildings of the temple which had recently been made splendid by Herod. And he he covered the temple facade with white marble and gold. And he made the temple complex, those buildings there, one of the wonders of the world. Notice it says, His disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And then Jesus said, Do you not see all these things? What things? The buildings of the temple. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another. He's talking about the buildings of the temple. He's not talking about the retaining walls of the Temple Mount Platform, which is different from the Temple itself. Mark's Gospel makes it even clearer. It says, Then as he went out of the Temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what manner of buildings are here. He's talking about the buildings. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So if we look at the Temple Mount today, we see Jesus' prophecy was perfectly fulfilled. Nothing remains of the Temple buildings on top of the Mount. A third argument is about the fresh water needed by the Temple, saying that there had to be running water for the priests to wash, and also to wash the Temple because of all the blood from the sacrifices. And the only fresh water spring was the Gihon Spring in the city of David. So the Temple had to be in the vicinity of the Gihon Spring in the city of David. And this is reinforced by Psalm 87. It says, and of Zion it will be said, all my springs are in you. But this is a statement about Zion, Jerusalem, not about the temple. Also, Joel 3.18 says, it will come to pass in that day that a fountain will flow from the house of the Lord. But this is a prophecy about a future temple in the millennium. The same could be said about Ezekiel's vision of rivers, of a river flowing out. From a future glorious temple in the messianic age ezekiel forty seven it obviously didn't describe the first and second temples. In fact, consideration of water sources only puts the final nail into martin 's theory. Jewish records tell us that tell us that the water for the temple came through an aqueduct from solomon 's pools at Etam near Bethlehem. These were twenty one meters higher than the temple. And so the water f- flowed freely to the temple mount and its cisterns. The siphon effect means that water can flow uphill for part of the journey, as long as the source is higher than the end point. It also means that this water could be released from the cisterns at will onto the mount when it was needed for cleansing. So the temple was cleansed by the abundant water coming from the spring etam, at or Ein Atan located near Bethlehem, it didn't come from the Gihon, and the water was transported to the temple by an aqueduct. There are three Jewish sources from the second temple that tell us this. The Jerusalem Talmud says a conduit ran from Etam to the temple. It's always been the aqueduct, bringing water to wash the court from day one that the temple was built. And uh, this aqueduct was rebuilt a few times by the Hasmoneans, by Herod. Another Jewish source says, How is the temple court cleaned? Seal the area and let the water from the aqueduct enter it till it becomes clean like milk. And the Mishnah also tells us that the water for filling the copper laver each day was brought by a conduit from the pools of Bethlehem. And this was the lower aqueduct to the Temple Mount, not to be confused with the upper aqueduct that Pontius Pilate built later. This aqueduct came over Wilson's Arch, thus supplying the Temple with all its water needs. So it was not necessary to use the Gihon for the Temple. In fact, the Gihon was used for the water needs of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In any case, during the first temple, Hezekiah built a tunnel diverting the waters of the Gihon to the pool of Siloam in the south for the people, so they were clearly not used for the temple. In fact, placing the temple in the city of David so it could be fed by the Gihon is where Martin's theory fails spectacularly, for the simple reason that water cannot flow uphill. Here we see Martin's reconstruction with the Antonia Fortress to the north on what we call today the Temple Mount. Martin's temple to the left is in the City of David. As we've seen, it's not possible to fit the Mishnah's Temple Mount of 500 cubits square onto the City of David, so Martin used Josephus's smaller measurement of 600 feet square. This way it's just large enough to cover the Gihon Spring that can be seen flowing out from its base out on the left. It also covers the spring fortifications. Uh, This Temple Mount, uh, this hypothetical Temple Mount, covers the spring fortifications and the houses higher up on the ridge that have have now been discovered and shown to be in use during the first Temple period. And that creates a massive problem for his theory. Uh, His Temple Mount also covers the area of David's palace on the top. But our focus is on the Gihon spring lower down the slope. It should be obvious that the Gihon could not possibly be the source of fresh running water for Martin's temple because it's 50 feet lower than his temple. The Gihon is near the bottom of the slope, near the base of the platform, well below where it's needed at the top. To make matters worse, there was no other fresh water source or aqueduct that supplied this part of the city of David, so this temple would have had no fresh water supply. So the water argument actually disproves Martin's theory. Another problem with Martin's picture is that his temple platform covers the Jebusite fortifications around the spring, as well as structures higher up on top. But it's been shown that these have all continued to be used throughout the first temple period. At the top, they discovered the foundations of a huge building called the large stone structure, most almost certainly David's palace, which was supported by a stone support structure called the Milo. At the base of the Milo, you can see here the houses that were in use until the end of the first temple period. This is called Area G. All of these would be covered by Martin's hypothetical temple platform, and even by Kuanuki's smaller one. And so these stones declare this theory to be false. Now, it seems that Cornuki, to his credit, has realized that Martin's temple mount is impossible because of the discovery of the Jebusite fort around the spring and its ongoing use throughout the first temple. So he's come up with another reconstruction that you're seeing now. You can see that his temple platform is much smaller than Martin's and that the Gihonon... Jebusite fortress is outside his Temple Mount, lower down the slope, in fact 50 feet lower. So after all the pleading that the Gihon must be within the Temple area, we find actually Kornuki's, in Cornukee's case, it's outside his Temple area, outside his Temple Mount. So all the arguments of him that the Gihon must be within the Temple are futile as actually he has them in two separate places. This reconstruction also makes it even clearer that water from the Gihon, where the Jebusite fortress is, could not possibly flow uphill to the temple. Also, Konuki's claim that the temple is a perfect fit in the city into the city of David is clearly false false. He's forced to have a temple mount that is much too small for the measurements given in the Mishnah and even Josephus's smaller measurements. The temple area his temple area, would be far too small for the huge numbers of people using it. There's only one place large enough to hold the temple and its courts, and that's the real Temple Mount. As for the water of the Gihon, it was not used for the temple but for the city. And when the city expanded greatly up the western hill in the time of Hezekiah, he built a tunnel, which you can go down today, to divert the water to the lower southern end, downhill to the Pool of Siloam. He also did this to make it more secure from the inv- invading Assyrians. Another argument is that the standard theory of the temple Mount with the Antonia fortress at its northwest corner on a rock scalp, on a rock scarp above and overlooking the temple does not agree with Josephus's account. First, as to size, they claim that the fort was not large enough to house all the soldiers that Josephus talks about. But the Antonia was not just the fortress. It was also a larger camp, as you can see in this picture. Most of the soldiers would have been camping in tents, as they're used to doing. And that also agrees with the different accounts of the Antonia. So there was indeed plenty of room. Josephus also tells us that the Antonia Fortress was on the northwest intersection of the porticos of the temple and that's perfectly represented in the standard view. Josephus also talks about a, a 600 foot walkway from the Antonia to the temple and so Cornuki imagines a huge bridge connecting the Roman camp to the city of David but 600 feet is the exact distance from the Antonia Fortress to the enclosure around the temple buildings. The Romans, you see, could climb down from the fortress, and they needed to sometimes, and they would climb down from the fortress to the top of the western portico to reach the temple if there was trouble. So there was no need to invent another bridge. Finally, Cornuki points to evidence of an area near the Gihon Spring that was possibly used for rituals and worship, confirming the sacredness of the spring. And this is is an interesting discovery. It's an early worship and sacrifice place, perhaps from the time of Melchizedek, perhaps from the Jebusites. But whatever it is, there's one thing it couldn't be. It couldn't have anything to do with Solomon's temple. Because any sacrifice not actually made on the Temple Mount itself would have been considered illegal. So it's certainly not evidence for the temple being nearby. In fact, having a competing place so close to the temple is unthinkable. So if anything, this is another argument that this temple could not have been in the city of David close to the Gihon. So we have to conclude that the real location of the temple is on the Temple Mount after all. And it would have looked something like this. And this is the place where one day, by God's sovereign hand, the Jews will build their third temple. Although what they don't know is that God will Only do this to call them back to himself by reminding them that forgiveness is only through the shedding of blood and the gospel will be declared to them through the preaching of the two witnesses that the perfect Lamb of God has already shed his blood for them and that they must therefore put all their trust in the Lord Yeshua as their true Messiah. This will be a major part in the national repentance and salvation of Israel leading to their deliverance and their full national restoration and blessing at the second coming, when he will reign over the whole earth from Jerusalem with Israel as his chief nation in fulfillment of all that their prophets have spoken.